I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner from Kansas City, and today joining me is Daniel Harrigus, Senior Editor for Strong Towns. Hello, Daniel. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Abby. Always a pleasure. Today, we are going to jump right in. We're going to be covering an article that actually gave Strong Towns a little bit of a shout out, which is kind of exciting. Um, So the title is called Against Master Developers. It was written by Matthew Rabar and published in the American Conservative. So the basic premise of the article is that our modern conventional city building approach for both infill and greenfield development is overwhelmingly geared towards this broad scale master planning approach where a single developer or a developer group uh, takes control of a large area to implement their plans. They are not only in charge of actually constructing buildings, but also leading the role in investing in all of the infrastructure and laying out streets, etc. So the author offers a few points of critique around this approach uh, that all at once large scale development often doesn't offer the environment in which resilient economic ecosystems emerge and that lack of risk distribution among the developers and the public entities is inherently fragile. So a traditional development approach in contrast is is often described by strong towns, but for the purposes of this conversation, it's really described in this article as Um, an approach that is driven by first public investment, where the city leads in establishing the public realm with a network of uh, streets and alleys. In between the street network are blocks of land that are supplied with infrastructure and cut up into parcels to be sold off to developers who either build one by one or perhaps uh, whole blocks. So this is what we'd probably call an incremental approach, which really isn't a slow approach. It's how a lot of cities were developed in the 19th and 20th centuries quite quickly. This is different than the master developer approach that we see for more conventional projects, especially in suburban environments where we see big subdivisions being built all at once or commercial shopping centers uh, being built by one big developer. And it's Also not the conventional approach for urban infill development either, um, albeit probably for different reasons, which we can get into. So to get started, maybe we can parse out just the development process and all the components involved with developing a site in general, because it is quite complicated. And I think there's some nuance that we could add into this. And I think that there's also some nuance that we can add around how we define the term master developer or master planner and what that what that really means, because I think a lot of us think about it in different ways. And and this article really talks about it in a very specific way. So maybe we can just jump right into that. You're as much of an expert on this as I am. But um, so 
I think the term developer as it's used by lay people sort of often lacks a little bit of nuance in terms of, well, which stage of the process are you talking about? So I'm going to use a specific example from my hometown um, of St. Paul, Minnesota, where I currently am as we record this, um, just to kind of illustrate what this process looks like. There is a, there's a large site in St. Paul. It's right in the city. And for about 70 years, it was a Ford Motor Company assembly plant for trucks. Um, and it was closed. It was decommissioned. And um, sort of a long, multi-year drawn-out process um, resulted in the sale of the whole 55 acres to a very large local development company, Ryan Companies. And they worked with the city of St. Paul. They, through you know several iterations, a whole lot of public feedback, they produced a master plan for this entire very large site. You know, this is essentially a brand new neighborhood within an existing city, which is a really rare thing. Um, you see it when you have a decommissioned industrial site. You see it when you have something like a military base or an airport that's closed. And you've got this large piece of land, and it's really complex. And there's there are environmental remediation issues to deal with from you know the previous use that may have contaminated the site. There are issues of dealing with whatever you find under the ground, with connecting it to existing infrastructure, existing utilities. Um, and a lot of that site preparation doesn't come cheap. So the public sector, at least today, generally finds itself unable to take on the immense upfront cost of preparing that kind of a site for development. Um, there are ways to do tax increment financing and things like that, where you essentially take on debt upfront and repay the costs through different mechanisms in the future. But for the most part, the the cost of simply preparing a large infill site to be developed is really prohibitive and it's really unpredictable. And so there's a lot of risk involved. And what is almost universally the case in cities today is that the public sector offloads that risk onto the private sector, which means a large developer, you know, a large corporation, a lot of access to capital, a patient timeline willing to take on like a billion dollar project. Um, the, the case study in St. Paul that I'm talking about, it's going to be a neighborhood called Highland Bridge. Um, I don't know the grand total, but it is easily over a billion dollars of real estate when it's all done. That piece of the process, subdividing the land, designing the public space, providing the utilities, is different from actually building the buildings. And so a lot of people think, well, a developer is someone who builds buildings. And it's actually possible to have a situation where a master developer prepares a large tract of land for development, deals with all of the like the legal process of getting individual lots entitled, deals with the utilities, and then different companies may come in and build different pieces of it. So in this case, um, in St. Paul, the, the master developer, Ryan Companies, has a pretty detailed site plan down to what individual buildings are going to be where, what's going to be in them, how tall they're going to be, what they're going to look like. That's not always the case. You may also have a case where you have a master developer that does a looser design for a subdivision or for a big multi-block infill development and then subcontracts a whole bunch of different developers and builders to build pieces of it. And that can actually happen in quite an incremental fashion. So we want to distinguish between the master developer who is dealing with the large-scale vision for a site versus the developer of an individual building who's sort of the project manager for that building and the ultimately the builder of an individual building. Um, the master developer may be the developer all the way down the line or may not be. I'm sorry if that was long-winded. I think these definitions are important. 
it's important to define it because, you know, the, the way that the author is describing this is, is really that, you know, the city used to be the entity that was establishing lots, blocks, you know, being the master developer. Although in some cases, it actually was a, a land speculator that would buy up buy up large pieces of land and then break those up. So um, it's kind of a chicken and egg kind of conversation as far as like who had the leverage to establish the framework in which development occurs. I think the irony is that the development approach that the author is describing, it lends itself really well to greenfield situations. And, you know, our our old neighborhoods today, our historic neighborhoods today were once greenfield development sites with, with nothing in the ground but dirt. And, you know, so it was a clean slate. And the city, you know, in some cases really had the opportunity to be the master planner and set the stage um, for how development would occur. Unfortunately, for urban reinvestment, it is more complex, um, which is why there there is so much bias towards having like a big wig developer come in and implement a huge master plan project. But, you know, as you mentioned, Daniel, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. There can be a situation where if there's a large site, a, a larger master planner um, could come in and and kind of set the stage for development to happen. Um, although it's it's typically not the city, it's typically going to be someone on the private sector side. I think in terms of small scale infill development, it's important to understand some of the nuances are around why that is so difficult, because I think the question of um, public sector investment and the public sector having skin in the game is important in this situation because, you know, let's say that you are, um, you live in a neighborhood and there's a vacant lot next to you where you can fit three small infill homes. First of all, if, if you, if you go to do that, you never know what you are dealing with under the ground. Um, it's not an empty piece of dirt necessarily with like brand new city installed infrastructure. It's potentially a half cleaned demolition site with old building foundation materials inside of it. Um, there might be old water and sewer lines that the city of course wants you to update as part of your project. So that's kind of the first layer of risk that is involved in a small scale reinvestment development project where there were buildings there at some point in the past, but now there's not buildings there, but you you never know what that demolition looked like. It could have been done 50 years ago and and you know it, the site may not have been remediated. So that's that's a cost that has really been offloaded onto the private sector. And then on top of that, you kind of have good old fashioned bureaucracy with um, rules and processes and potentially government staffing policies that aren't really set up to deal with small-scale infill development. It's it's not even really just an issue of zoning. Like the perfect zoning code is not necessarily going to be the savior of your city because a lot of the things that make small-scale development difficult have to do with mismatched interdepartmental priorities and policies and just a lack of cohesive process. So 
you know, you never know. You might need to install a, an underground water tank or you might be expected to pay parkland dedications or expected to update all the infrastructure and the various city departments may not communicate with one another um, because cities are, are, there's a disconnect, right? Like between our broad scale city planning policies that say we want walkable neighborhoods, we want small scale infill development, we want missing middle housing. We, we say in these documents that we want all these things, but when you get into the actual development process and how those kinds of projects play out, um, you know, small, small scale developers can incur significant amounts of unanticipated procedural expenses that make the project unviable. And if the project is unviable, you just aren't going to get those kinds of projects. You're going to have the whole um, development world shift to large scale to deal with all of the risk involved with doing a project. And so that's why you don't get small scale development in your city. Um, and, you know, if, if, cities used their leverage of, you know, being the entity that could set the stage for how development happens and where it takes place. You know, maybe they say in this neighborhood, we're going to make a strategic effort to remediate some of these sites or to strategically update infrastructure. There there are things that cities can do to, in a sense, be the master developer to be the ones to kind of lead the way in where development happens and how. You know, a lot of what you just said, you really laid out the the kinds of obstacles that small-scale developers can encounter that either present unanticipated costs or unanticipated delays or can really threaten the viability of a project. And somebody with deep pockets can can weather those kinds of surprises. So you really just sort of made the case for why there needs to be a deep pocketed guiding hand. I think then the question is, you know, because the article that we're discussing lays out, you know, it's titled Against Master Developers and lays out a number of reasons why the outcomes of that are undesirable for cities. And I, I think we need to talk then about how to thread that needle. Like if we we recognize the reasons that we're not getting a bunch of small scale, single lot development projects when we have big areas that need some redevelopment or some remediation in cities. But we also recognize that we consider that desirable, that a lot of city planning departments have come around to considering that desirable, that they say it in their own plans in their own policy documents, in their own codes, we want this. So how do you thread that needle? How do you recognize um, we've got these problems with large-scale development? It's It tends to be more sterile. It tends to not support small local entrepreneurs. It tends to be guided by fewer hands, which means that mistakes are more costly. Um, it's a more fragile pattern down the road. But you've given me all these good reasons just now why the alternative is often not viable. So let's delve into... What's the answer? What, how can we approach the infill development process differently to address Matthew Rubar's critiques, um, but in a way that is practical, that isn't just like, well, of course, we're just going to subdivide this into a bunch of tiny lots and say, all right, small scale developers have at it. What could go wrong? Right. <laughs> well, I mean, it, there's a lot of different development project types and, you know, I'm, my mind is specifically kind of glued to this, you know, one-off project infill development 
um, that that needs to be done. And so to make that viable, I think it is really about uh, dispersing risk and and not putting all the risk on the private sector and for cities to really understand that they have leverage when it comes to public investment. If they if they decide to reinvest their dollars in the existing street network, existing neighborhoods to uh, update infrastructure and prepare it for development, I think that that can be really powerful. And, you know, it just generally, if, if city plans say that you want this kind of small scale development, it's important for cities to take a step back from just a city management perspective. It's not even just the planning departments. It's about all departments really anticipating small scale development. And, you know, the the problem is that cities have just outsourced the work of master planning, as the author points out. So the private sector is really taking on all of those costs and risks. And in this case, the public sector just has really little skin in the game um, just as cities led the way with traditional development of our cities, I think that they need to lead the way in neo-traditional development, whatever that looks like. This means that we really need the public sector to uh, find creative ways to invest in anticipating infill development rather than kind of being more reactive and um, having you know the private sector or a master planner come come to them with plans to rebuild their city. Cities can't simply outsource all improvements and hope developers with deep pockets will be able to fulfill what's needed on every uh, empty block of urban neighborhoods. In some cases, there may be large tracts of land where it could be replatted and and changed for for a larger project or a master plan development project. But there are so many tiny lots that really ought to be preserved and for the small scale development projects. Um, but it's important for cities just to recognize that a small project cannot absorb the costs associated with everything beyond building the building. And so really providing support um, as a as a public entity, it, it helps to disperse risk and it helps to make a point about the public sector using their leverage to guide development and, and to be less less uh, reactive to to the private sector. In the article, um, the author Matt Rabar talks about Chicago a little bit. Um, and so I, I agree with everything you just said. I think I think the use of Chicago was really interesting to me because one of the touchstones that I hear all the time from people interested in city planning and development, particularly from people interested in the strong towns approach, is Daniel Burnham's famous famous plan of Chicago from 1909 gets held up as this like what not to do. You know, um, Burnham is famous for the quote "Make no little plans; they have no magic to stir men's blood." Um, and he was sort of this outsized figure who drew up a master plan for the city of Chicago in the early 20th century. And it covered civic buildings, it covered public spaces, it covered streets, these grand diagonal boulevards that would cut across the grid. Some of it was implemented, some of it wasn't. But um, I think there's a misconception that this is everything a strong towns advocate should be against, right? Like the public sector 
laying out a master plan for a whole city. Like, can you imagine the hubris? Like we need to just turn it loose for, for small scale developers. And I think <laughs> the, um, right. it's funny because I actually think that, and th- this is where the term master planning means too many different things and nuance gets lost. Yeah. Um, you actually look at something like the Burnham plan or you look at recent attempts to bring something like that back, like the city of Bastrop, Texas, which is sort of a, it's a town a little bit outside of Austin rapidly becoming an exurb of Austin and Bastrop overhauled its municipal code a couple of years ago and instituted this really remarkable plan that, that harks back to an earlier era of development in that what they said is here's the street grid. This is what the blocks are going to look like. They got to connect with each other. They got to be this size. You can expand on the edges of town, but you got to do it by conforming to this grid that we've already designed. Um, this is how we're going to handle utilities. This is how we're going to handle stormwater. And we've got the plan for you. There's no, you know, we'll, we'll help we'll help you with that. But this is what we're going to do. And if you want to expand, you expand on our template. But in terms of what actually gets built, that template yeah. is really, really flexible. And the same thing happened with Chicago. Individual land speculators would go in on what was then like the rural fringe of Chicago and they would build like four new blocks, eight new blocks, 12 new blocks, but they would build it as an expansion of the existing template, the the street grid. And so it was instantly connected to Chicago's existing neighborhoods. You had that urban fabric. Um, and one of the biggest pitfalls of what we do now where we really remove the public voice in setting the parameters for what new development is going to look like is now you get sort of pod-like development where a private company has control of everything internal to the site. How are the streets going to be laid out? What uses are going to go where? To the point where you might get this really large redevelopment site and it's what's internal to it might be really cool. It might be really well done, but then there's no connectivity. The streets don't line up with the streets serving it from the outside. It's this sort of uh, cloistered enclave. And cities become these really disjointed masses of like, here's one large scale subdivision and here's a different one. And you got to use a car to get between them. So the, the grid and the template, the adaptable template you can follow, like that gets a bad rap as well, master planning. And like, if you're for incrementalism, you got to be against master planning. I actually think that that is a model of master planning that we can learn from where you're not micromanaging the outcome to the level of the individual building whether it's commercial, whether it's residential, what what goes in there. But you are establishing the template to make sure that it fits into the fabric of the city. And someone's got to do that work. And I think it is really tragic how we have outsourced that to the private sector and sort of outside of democratic control, frankly. Yeah. Well, and when it comes to like new greenfield development, uh, you know, expanding on an existing city and building uh, where there is has never been anything built before, that's why subdivision regulations are a critically important tool that cities can actually have the leverage of basically driving how lots and blocks and streets are going to be laid out. And a lot of cities, you know, their subdivision regulations are quite weak. And so you have the situation where developers can go in and they can build cul-de-sacs that go for a mile and they can build um, in a way where the new subdivision doesn't connect to the existing context of the city. 
And that's where things get really disjointed. And so I think that, you know, having good subdivision regulations that that ensure that streets are being laid out in a way that that there's expectations that they will connect to one another and that you're creating like a cohesive layout of streets and blocks um, that that is very important. And so I think I, I think that's where master planning and comprehensive planning, it, it does have a role to play. Um, so, you know, it's like, I'm, I think that the, the critique is around the coordination, like ultimately, um, are we just kind of offloading all of the expectations to the private sector? They're not only taking on all the risk, but we're not really giving them a template or a framework for how you expand on the city. That puts the city in a really bad place, and it ultimately um, makes for really uncoordinated development patterns that could have been a lot better. So I, I agree. I think that the the Chicago model of just having um, a template to follow is perfectly reasonable when you're expecting that you know different different developers are going to go in and and lay out streets and to expand on the city it it's definitely you know this is where we start to have lots of different definitions for what a de- master developer is but there's definitely a role for having kind of this big picture vision and understanding of of the long game and how things ultimately need to be laid out so that there is a cohesive development pattern yeah it's not the same thing as micromanaging the outcome or having a cookie cutter outcome in, you know, a lot of the critiques of master planning are you get sterility, you get buildings that are too big and homogenous and kind of sterile. Well, you don't, you don't have to have that. You don't have to settle for that, but there are these issues of coordination to make a neighborhood that ultimately where the end goal is to have a bunch of different hands shaping it in small ways, a bunch of different owners participating in its development. If you want to be able to get to that point, you need a certain kind of coordinating hand up front. And it, yeah, I, I think we're in agreement that the public sector should, that we should reconsider the role for cities in doing that proactively. Um, I know we're running out of time here. I just, you know, I think we talked about risk earlier. I think it's worth saying, especially from a strong town's perspective where we're all about um, risk management and, you know, financial solvency or financial small C conservatism. It's important to recognize that when we talk about asking the public sector to take on some of the risk associated with preparing for redevelopment in an area where if the public sector abdicates that role, they are not removing any risk from their ledger. The risk just comes in different forms. The risk comes in the form that you get a large scale developer that might do something that you don't want that doesn't serve your long-term goals as a community that, or that doesn't stand the test of time very well. That is, dated and not as successful after 20 or 30 years. And that's a risk as well. So we're not calling for the public sector to take more risk rather than less risk. We're calling for the public sector to not to not abdicate its role of having a really strong voice in coordinating what development looks like. Like I would argue that that's, I mean, if you if you say, hey, I'm the public sector, I here's this neighborhood with a bunch of empty lots and the infrastructure, the site the infrastructure needs to be updated. The sites need to be remediated so that 
small scale developers can come in and do these infill projects. That is, I would think you could do the math on this, of course, but you know, that's a returning investment in the long run because especially for one-off parcels, the alternative is that nothing happens until it becomes overwhelmingly viable for someone with deep pockets to come in and do a very risky project that has to do with remediating a site and updating infrastructure and building a small project. So so the city really has a lot of leverage there and it's 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 always a risk to um you know take part in any development project but it, it it's a returning investment because you're ultimately putting those lots back to good use productive use and so the alternative in many cases is that these lots sit empty and continue to be liabilities that are not being used productively I think it's worth considering the trade-offs because because ultimately if if you have a bunch of vacant lots that sit vacant for very long amounts of time, um, you know, that's very unproductive for a city. And oftentimes that happens in cities and then at the same time they're expanding their infrastructure liabilities out on the edge, right? So it's like they're adding liability um, and at the same time not leveraging existing infrastructure very productively. So I think that's kind of like a policy decision to make and like a a city management kind of discussion to have. But it's important to consider what's being lost. And, you know, you could take a lot of risk off of the private sector and at the same time be really benefiting the public wealth uh, in the long run. And you're also you're setting the stage for local people to be developers and build wealth and, you know, to have local ownership. If you just rely on large-scale development, you're not really creating as many opportunities for, like, everyday people to have opportunities to build build wealth and have businesses, et cetera. So, uh, you know, worth considering all of those things. I think we can leave it there. Great article. So before we conclude today, it is time for The Down Zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been reading or watching, listening to, anything that has been captivating our attention these days. So, Daniel, how are you doing? What have you been up to? So I am in Minnesota right now. We we drove up with our one-year-old to spend some time with my parents, and um, it's been really nice. I also took a little bit of time off work, and it has allowed me to get out and do some stuff with my kid that I've just been dying to do. So the big one was... Um, we went to the zoo earlier this week and um, I actually, I grew awesome. up like half a mile, if that, probably less than that from a city owned zoo in St. Paul. So like I, I took this for granted as a kid that I could just like walk down the street and look at giraffes and zebras. And like, I didn't actually go all that often. And now that I'm an adult, I'm like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Um, and it had been on our list. Like, when are we going to take her to a zoo? So um we we did and it was delightful and she would kind of half the time she would not understand really what she was seeing because she's still pretty young and then we'd like turn the corner and there'd be some bighorn sheep and she'd go bah so um, it was a good time <laughs> <laughs> she knows all the barnyard sounds as any self respecting toddler does oh really <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah we've been we've been practicing she can sing old McDonald till the cows come home 
That's so funny. I I haven't been to a zoo in so long, but I've been thinking about going. Kansas City has a zoo, so yeah, it might be time for me to go. Maybe next time when my niece and nephew are in town, we can go hit up the zoo because I'm sure I'm sure it's more fun to go with little kids who have never seen all of these animals before. <laughs> it is absolutely a good time. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, so I've actually been kind of busy uh, coordinating for Parking Day. Kansas City is having their first ever Parking Day Festival next month. Um, And I'm coordinating the design build process uh, for our installation with a few coworkers of mine. I don't know. Do you know what Parking Day is? Uh, maybe I should explain it for people who I do, don't know. I do, but I know. bet a lot of our listeners don't. Yeah, so for listeners who are not aware of what Parking Day is, it is, I believe, an international uh, quote-unquote holiday where cities across the country have a festival and they create little parklets into from their parking spaces. So there, you know, one or two blocks, you'll have all of the parking spaces turned into mini parklets for a day. And everybody who participates in it has one parking space and they do an installation inside of it. So we are partaking in this parking day. And me and my coworkers have kind of gone through this process of, you know, designing what could go in this space. And, you know, we're using like a lot of carpet tubes. So we've you know, cut those in half and we're like starting to glue them together and to, you know, put together this whole installation. So it should be really fun. It's going to happen next month. Um, So I'm I'm excited to see what everybody else comes up with, quite frankly. I'm um, looking forward to seeing photos. It sounds like a great time. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I've, I've been taking pictures of the process, so I'll have to I'll have to like put together maybe a blog post or something so that people can see like the the process of building building all of this out. It should be it should be pretty cool when it's done. We have these big grassy mounds that we're using um, that like you can basically climb on. And I think if there's kids around, that's gonna be really fun. My coworker's son, who is like, I don't know how old he is, maybe like eight years old, he came in today when we were starting to build the installation and saw the mounds and immediately started climbing on them. And I'm like, that is exactly what I want to happen on parking day. So <laughs> so it should work out perfectly. <laughs> that, that's your beta test right there. Yeah, that's the beta test. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Daniel. Always good to talk to you. And thanks for jumping on uh, during your time off, your vacation time. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Always always fun to join you here, Abby. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Let me show you what I'm about to do. Get down tonight. Get down tonight. Oh, we're about to get down.